Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. It's Ian Wright here from the FDF with this week's podcast. This week, we're going to do something a bit different. Uh, as you may know, over the last few months, we've been staging literally dozens of webinars uh, from affiliate members of the FDF and from others designed to give our membership across the board the best possible information and the most possible thought provocation about the way in which food and drink and the industry in general is developing. So this week, we thought we'd give you a taste of that thought provocation. A couple of weeks ago, we recorded a webinar called Cannabis and CBD in Food and Drink, Fad or the Future. We staged this webinar in conjunction with experts, Hanway Associates, and they brought together a really, really top-class panel to discuss the future of cannabis and food and drink. I'll talk about them in a minute, but this is a really important issue for the industry. Cannabis has been around as a potential player in the food and drink industry for many years. In fact, as long ago as seven or eight years when I was working for Diageo, we looked closely at the possibility of investing in the cannabis market, usually uh, to think about it as a potential supplement for drinks. Uh, we didn't do it at that time, and it was probably an idea whose time had not yet come. In fact, during the discussion, you'll hear a couple of the participants talk about the fact that on a number of occasions, it's been too early for investment in cannabis and CBD. But now, I think, is the time Lots and lots of other countries are looking at this. Cannabis is legal for medical and recreational reason, reasons in many territories. And the use of it in other forms of food and drink is beginning to be more widely accepted. So this is an issue which it's important that our industry really understands and where it can see the opportunities that may come down the track. Shortly, you'll hear from George McBride, who's the CEO of Hanway Associates, and he'll be in conversation with Rebecca Hall, who leads Southwest Brands, and Spiros Malandrakos, who's an expert in the subject for Euromonitor. Their conversation is absolutely fascinating. Over to George. My name's George McBride. I'm the CEO of Hanway Associates. We are a strategic consultancy advising on operations in legal cannabis markets globally. We specialize in growth strategies, market access, product launches, operational excellence, business development, and strategic partnerships. So we're here to help businesses who are already operating in cannabis sectors to expand or businesses from outside of this space uh, to explore opportunities within it. Joining me today is Spiros Malandrakis from Euromonitor International, who is an expert in alcoholic drinks, but is also a keen expert in this area, having been longstanding uh, friend and contact of mine. We've been speaking about these issues for a number of years. Uh, with us also is Rebecca Hall, who is the CEO of Southwest brands. And she's a, a pioneering entrepreneur, really, in the CBD and FMCG space and is a, uh, a real bellwether of the kind of quality of people who, who are moving into this area. There are five different segments to the cannabis market that, that we identify, and, and they have very different rules and regulations around them. So they are uh, medical, pharmaceutical, recreational, wellness, and industrial hemp. So products as different as a, a spliff to insulation materials for construction through to supplement food and drinks, which is what we'll be talking about today, and prescription and non-prescription medication. The biology of the cannabis plant is, is also complex. Uh, there are well over 100 active chemicals to be found in the plant will be focusing mostly on the kind of hot topic compound, uh, which is CBD. But there's a range of different compounds, including THC, which is the part which is a principal part in getting people high. And these are produced in the flower of the plant, specifically in the trichomes, which are small mucousy strands, which produce a whole range of interesting 
uh, phytocannabinoids with a range of different medical and wellness applications. The way in which cannabis works um, is similar to a naturally occurring compound in the body, anandamide. It's crucial for the initiation of suckling in newborns, so we're all hardwired to respond to cannabis. The endocannabinoid system, our endogenous system, which works with cannabinoids, is essential for maintaining homeostasis in everything from your immunoresponse through to uh, regulation of your mood and sleep. The, the plant is probably most similar to hops, um, which is a, a closely uh, related plant which also produces a similar range of unique aromas and tastes uh, from the flavonoids and terpenes in the plant. So, as I said, the focus is on CBD today, but even within CBD, there's a range of different things you can be talking about. You can be talking about a, a broad-spectrum oil from the flower, which contains CBD and a range of other compounds from the flower, normally with the THC removed, but not always if you're talking about recreational market. Then there are microemulsions, uh, which are, are further processed, sometimes to be water-soluble, uh, nanoemulsions. Um, and then you have CBD isolate, which is a refined extract uh, from the flower and uh, hot topic at the moment is synthetic which for a range of regulatory reasons is becoming particularly interesting and these are 100% pure CBD produced without touching the plant and therefore avoiding certain regulatory issues. So there are a number of parallels with existing uh, compounds uh, that you'll be aware of, but the most interesting is probably caffeine. In the way that caffeine can be derived from plants, it can also be synthesized um, in a lab without any plant material. Uh, it's included in a range of different food and drink products, and it's also in over-the-counter and prescription medications. So if you're thinking about CBD, it, it's good to think about it in a parallel to caffeine where there's a range of different uh, ways that it can be used and produced and they all have different respective benefits and, uh, and drawbacks in certain instances. So the question that I haven't dealt with yet is, you know, why are people using CBD? Why have we seen this huge uh, shift towards consumers wanting CBD in their product? So uh, here at Hanway, we break this down across these different axes, mind and body and medical and lifestyle. And you can see that there's a real disparate range of reasons why people are using this compound uh, from everything for, from alleviating the, the symptoms of epilepsy through to general focus or relaxation. And, and there are different products which suit different need states. And as you can see, there is quite a, a range uh, here and therefore quite a range of the different products on the market. So that's kind of uh, what what CBD is. Now, now uh, this is a look at, at how it's regulated. So here in, in the UK, um, there's a number of different levels uh, of regulation to deal with. At the United Nations international level, um, there are restrictions around the cultivation of the cannabis plant and certain compounds within the cannabis plant are controlled at the international level, although CBD is not currently. Then at the EU level, uh, there's uh, the European Food Standards Agency, which recently changed the guidance uh, to specify that uh, cannabis extracts in food and drinks need to go through the novel foods process. And then more recently again, have said that they are now no longer validating novel food applications for uh, CBD, which is plant-derived, as they deem it to be a controlled substance coming from the cannabis flower. Now, that is in conflict with the now deviating UK standards. The UK FSA um, has a process starting in January 2021 where... Uh, food and drink products containing CBD can be authorized through a novel food process, but there is no distinction between synthetic lab-derived CBD and plant-derived CBD. There are 
other regulatory bodies which are very relevant as well in that this is also a uh, prescription medicine and therefore it's important to realize that food and drink products could come under the ambit of the MHRA if they're being sold for a medical purpose or they're giving medical claims and also the Advertising Standards Agency which sets out a number of guidelines about what you can and can't say when you're selling products containing this compound. Hopefully that gives you a, a good background on what we'll be talking about today. Um, like I said, there's a lot more detail in there. So please re reach out to us uh, at Hanway at the SDF and um, to Rebecca and Spiros and, and we can get into more detail uh, about any areas that are of interest to you. But that should be enough to now set the scene for us to move on to a discussion. I wanted to talk about what, what people are talking about most of the time at the moment, which is the quite significant regulatory barriers to getting involved with this product. Rebecca, you're very well versed in what's going on at the regulatory level, both internationally at the EU level and in the UK. What, what's your feeling about what direction this is going? It's a complicated question and one that one that often absorbs a lot of time in these conversations. So I'll try and try and be brief. My my experience in this industry was was built through founding one of the, the first brands to launch a CBD product in this market in Botanic Lab, a CBD be beverage, before the novel food um, structure was put into place for CBD. Um, so we've been through, I've navigated a lot of the twists and turns that have, have taken place in this market and, and some of them that I'm sure, sure are, are going to to come in the future. I think the first thing that's important to say is that no consumer goods market, which is what we're talking about here, as opposed to medical cannabis or recreational cannabis, we're talking about consumer products. No consumer products market, something like this can exist without regulation and regulation shouldn't be viewed as a negative um, for the commercialization of an industry. It's, it's a huge positive. And I think um, to your point earlier, the, the FSA here in the UK are to be commended for taking a structured approach and providing a pathway um, for the commercialization of products here in, in the UK. Yeah, the recent changes at an EU level have provided another twist in the road for European countries, and they are likely to provide a divergence between the way the UK moves and the way Europe moves. I think from, from a macro perspective, in a post-Brexit, post-COVID environment, where the UK is pushing ahead in building a sensible, regulated commercial industry for these products, it's relatively inconceivable to think that other European countries won't follow. Um, and my, my, this is a personal belief, but I believe that, that the current twist in the road is exactly that, another twist in the road in something that is a very emotive topic in the nascent industry. So I think yeah, my, my view on this from a million miles away is that, that as yeah, my, my role in, in, in Southwest, we're very much focused on commercialising brands in CBD now. And you can't do that without having a strong understanding and grasp of regulation and working with regulators and retailers to get to a point where consumers and retailers can have confidence in what we're selling. But I would add that I don't think any regulatory pro process can exist in isolation without consumers, retailers, brands, manufacturers involved in that. And it's important that that process um, doesn't lose the confidence of all of those stakeholders in an industry that we all accept is already out of the block, is already growing and evolving, and it is unlikely to stop. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. It's, uh, it's unfortunate how complex this is and what a significant barrier it presents to uh, moving in who would be able to, to help pay on. Uh, this industry and the kind of uh, rigor that needs to continue to grow. Um, Biros, what, where's your view on, on where this regulatory process is going? And obviously a little bit of um, a twist in the conversations today is also part of the, of the equation. I guess uh, we're in the post-COVID world, online conversations tend to have this kind of twists, more or less like this, this story that we're discussing now. So we can take it um, as a little training exercise for what awaits us ahead. But I would definitely agree with what Rebecca said. Uh, I have uh, had highlighted the cross-pollination potentially between the alcohol industry that have been covering for the last decade and uh, the cannabis industry in its holistic nature, not just in terms of CBD, but in terms of CBG um, and everything else that is included there, even and up to flavors. And I fully agree with, uh, with Rebecca. And I would add that uh, it's not just a matter of uh, political initiatives um, and regulatory initiatives that, that are 
definitely going to eventually move into that direction. But it's also a very important question about consumer pool instead of just a, a politician push, if you wish. Uh, there's definitely uh, demand out there. We, many before me already mentioned the importance of major players in actually uh, cementing this momentum uh, and moving forward. But I would argue on top of that, that the, um, the demand is already happening out there. As we know, there's a, a multitude of brands available in the high streets across the world, uh, from the US to Europe, to the UK and beyond, even in markets where cannabis legalization is actually many steps behind uh, public opinion. So um, I wholeheartedly believe that um, it is exactly that genuine, authentic consumer pool that will um, accelerate these developments much more in the next couple of years. And of course, on top of that, the financial benefits for the states, regulators, and everyone involved in that um, equation, um, especially within the context of the, the upcoming uh, COVID-19-related recession and the pandemic-induced mental health issues, that will make this kind of conversation much more relevant and topical moving forward. I think that's an important point, Spiros, in that, in that I hate not using the word that is overused at the moment. We're living in unprecedented times right now. And, and the, the pace of change in the way that consumers shop and behave, I don't think any of us could have, could have predicted. And, and what that means is that increasingly brands and retailers need to search for renewed relevance for their consumers. And that relevance isn't going to be found in the trends of the last 10 years. That, that relevance is found in looking forward, both in terms of the way people shop and the things that they're shopping for. Um, so I think anyone who's ignoring this right now, and, and I don't think it's, it's understating this to say that, that CBD in, in the health and wellness sphere, which is what we're talking about at the moment, has, is, is unprecedented in its ability to penetrate different product categories, different consumers, different demographics. I think anyone who is not paying attention to this right now has their eyes shut, to be honest. I think most people are paying attention, is my experience, at, at every level from uh, government to regulators to large FMCG businesses through to staff. But of information, misinformation is quite staggering. And unfortunately, it leads to a lot of people pursuing um, non-viable business plans or perfectly viable business plans being caught up in a compliance process that isn't fit for purpose and, and doesn't allow them to move into what is clearly a very exciting area with a lot of potential for growth. It's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the audience for this webinar, I think, is quite important to this industry and it, it sort of veers off into, into a new topic somewhat. But yeah, up until now, a lot of the um, commercial opportunity around CBD has been has been discussed in the context of vertically integrated businesses with um, you know, a focus from, from farm to, to shelf. And actually what that ultimately has led to from my perspective is a real neglect of branding and, and ultimately the consumer pull that sits at the end of that chain. And that's arguably the most valuable piece of the chain, but it's also the most important piece for creating demand to state the obvious across the rest of the value chain. And, and there's been a real lack of focus on that. For want of a better word, we've had a, a load of white label products on the shelf from dubious producers without real thought about how you engage consumers in the process of building this industry. And that's where the real opportunity lies right now for CPG businesses who, who know how to build brands. You know, this is that's essentially what this exercise is. It's building brands. And, and there's a real opportunity for those who want to step into this market and bring some of that rigor knowledge and expertise into this market and, and at that end of the spectrum and to professionalize what's going on here. Some people don't like that, you know, they want this to remain um, a kind of shady industry that's grey and that's got opportunities on the edges. Yeah, I'm not one of those people. I've always been a proponent that this the opportunity here needs proper investment and it needs um, people with experience, professional individuals who can who can bring this industry out of the shadows and into and into the kind of mainstream. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting for us at Hamway. One of our kind of core focuses is mainstreaming cannabis. It's um, I'm seeing this as part of you know a legitimate industry and being aware that that is you know playing with big players and dealing with governments and regulators and definitely as you said it, it's difficult when there is so much resistance from such large parts of, of the sector to to engage with it like that and to see this as a fully legitimate business that needs to deal with regulators it's one of the major impediments. To, to its growth. What, what do you got? What do you two think about the the current hot topic, which is synthetics versus plant derived? Do you see? I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I know everyone's talking about it. But do you see 
plant-derived CBD products at an EU level, or do, do you see everyone switching to synthetics to avoid the, um, the the nightmare of dealing with the regulatory issues that are associated with the plant? I, I see, I think, taking one step back, I think the, the CBD industry in health and wellness is one that's driven by a larger trend towards um, a movement for consumers towards natural products, um, towards functional food and drinks and an understanding of where those products come from. And I think trying to separate CBD out of that and create it as just a kind of a molecule that can be synthetic, I think is, is a mistake and is one that's not going to fly with the, with the consumer. Is there a role for synthetics? I think there probably is. Um, I see it much more as a workaround for regulation, which, to be honest, there have been so many workarounds for regulation in the past few years, and I just don't think that's a sensible way to build the industry. Um, is there a role for them? Yes, undoubtedly there, there there is. Do I think they're going to be at the forefront of this industry? No, because I just don't think it fits with the, the ethos of what's behind this health and wellness movement in CBD. And I would largely agree with that. I must say that, especially when it comes, when we're seeing in alcohol and drinks as well, one of the major trends of the last few years has obviously been the, the rise of what we call craft, micro distillers, micro brewers. Um, one of the major um, catalysts of growth has been their natural ingredients, or at least their positioning in terms of natural ingredients, all the way from beer to non-alcoholic adult beverages to, um, uh, to, to small-scale genes. Um, these kind of attributes continue being extremely important. And I think um, as we will most likely see an, a renewed interest in anything health-related, health and wellness-related, or health positions in the next couple of years, I would definitely agree with Rebecca that um, the priority would be on natural ingredients. But as she said as well, uh, that doesn't, that shouldn't take synthetics entirely out of the equation. I think possibilities for certain products um, within branding uh, can also happen uh, to provide opportunities in that respect as well. Uh, not all brands are created equal. Not all brands have focusing on the same demographics. In other words, not all demographics will be prioritizing natural ingredients. The simple example I used in wine, natural wine, uh, essentially uh, without the use of uh, any additional sulfites or anything, any 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 anything added to the, to the production process, has been making inroads in the last couple of years across the world, uh, massive growth rates. But in actual rea uh, realistic terms, pragmatically looking at it, it's really tiny. The vast majority of consumers are still opting for cheap and cheerful wines. So I wouldn't necessarily say that. Of course, you know we should only look at of natural ingredients. Opportunities will continue existing. The bigger um, the pie, if you wish, becomes slices of it will become available across uh, all the segments. I think you're absolutely yeah. right, Spiros, in that the, the, the industry often moves to the to the assumption that CBD is going to be the preserve of premium brands. And that's, yeah, it's that's commercially not sensible and viable. And it's also not a reflection of the kind of interest levels in CBD. And I think part of the opportunity in this industry is that there is a place for this ingredient right the way from premium through to value. And recognizing that opportunity, and, and certainly from my perspective um, as, a, as an entrepreneur in this sector, and, and, and commercializing across that spectrum is part of the interest area. But I, but I also think that that um, what's exciting about moving on from the regulatory conversation is there are so many other things at play in this industry around quality of product that are relevant in the wider universe that are also relevant to this. For example, um, supply chains, where a product comes from. Um, the environmental impact of that packaging, all things that haven't really been majored on in this industry yet. And, and that conversation is still to come. And I hope it's to come soon because they're so relevant for the consumer. Um, we know that the consumer is so interested in them and they're, they're so kind of cheek and jowl with a lot of the things around, around CBD. So I hope that we can see the conversation now develop in terms of how brands develop to incorporate some of those other conversations that consumers are so interested in. I'm particularly interested to see just how significant consumer uh, preferences for plant-derived and sustainable products will be and whether that is a really significant um, determining factor in their uh, decision-making about what to buy. And But uh, on the last comment from me on the synthetics thing is just that we, we uh, obviously this is a business and um, we've seen uh, the cost of plant-derived CBD plummet over the last few years and we're still very much unaware quite um, what cost of production they'll be for synthetics when they're done at scale. So it'll be interesting to see whether they become significantly cheaper or competitive or, or not even competitive. It's still very much unknown. I'm just going to say, I mean, that, that's exactly the reason why I think 
yeah, that, that decrease in price in raw ingredient is exactly why the the assumption that the early part of the value chain around growing and extracting CBD is the commercially interesting place of this industry is entirely wrong. And, and, and really, where if you're going to get excited about this industry, the branded goods part of this industry is the bit you really should be focusing on there. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about consumer trends a bit. This is um, uh, both of you uh, are, are good on this topic. So um, what, what do you think that the, the major trends are going to be in the branded goods part of this uh, market? Um, what do you think's next in terms of real real trends that we're going to see? I started highlighting the, the potential um, uh, cross-pollination, if you wish, between alcohol and cannabis just uh, four or five years ago. And I, I remember back then, it was um, before Constellation made this move, obviously, with uh, cannabis growth that uh, in some ways worked and some others it didn't. But it definitely paved the way for others to follow. Um, my main my main understanding and the, the reason I approached it was not actually through the lens of the uh, potential of cannabis per se, but rather through the lens of uh, the defensive position that alcohol was getting itself uh, anyway, regardless of cannabis being there or not. In other words, we started seeing a massive spike in interest in uh, what uh, a couple of years ago would be considered an oxymoron, essentially the rise of non-alcoholic adult beverages. Many demographics, not just uh, the usual uh, pregnant women and religious minorities, but actually consumers that historically were the major driver for alcohol consumption rates, uh, essentially millennials, Generation Z consumers, were actually actively cutting down consumption of alcohol in terms of occasions and in terms of volume consumed. And just combine that with the fact that Yes, people are cutting down on alcohol, but potentially because of health reasons, because of calorie uh, intake, uh, because of uh, a change in outlook and priorities in life. But I, I realize that if we combine that with an alternative substance um, that can actually safely provide many of the, of the advantages that alcohol does without many of the downsides, essentially that would become um, this kind of magical uh, moments of creativity that um, could uh, obviously massive opportunities moving forward. So uh, these are things from the alcohol side of things and the, the drink side of things, you know, the, the, the rise of, and rise of health and wellness that, again, and I stress that is not something only relevant to boomer generations or, or um, specific minorities, but rather across the spectrum of age, demographics, class, and everything in between. Um, and I believe that cannabis, uh, not just CBD, but again, um, working for the alcohol industry, I have no issues with uh, fully embracing the recreational side of things. Uh, I don't think it should be a taboo to discuss it anymore. I think we are way ahead of that stage. Uh, um, and, I, and, I, and in that context, I think the opportunities will continue existing um, in terms of trends. As I say, on the, on the drink side, I, I agree with you very much. I think the obvious reduction in alcohol consumption um, has led to the question, well, what's going to replace that? And, and as anyone who who operates in the soft drink sector knows, and I've had lots of conversations with you know with some of the people on this webinar today. Um, that doesn't necessarily translate to an increase in consumption of the traditional soft drinks that are available to consumers. And then that has to pose the question: Well, why, why is that? And 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 that means that actually some of the the traditional soft drinks that are on the market aren't fit for purpose for for, for the for the next generation of consumer. Um, so I think CBD, in its intrigue alone, has the potential to fill that gap. Um, but also, as you said, with its function, it, it's akin to some of the reasons that people do drink alcohol. So it has the potential to, to fill that gap. But I think outside of drinks, there are kind of other trends that are driving people towards this ingredient, like the genuine move in across food and drink products and, and not just in food and drink in, in CPG in general to soft function in consumer products. Um, where traditionally 20 years ago you would visit your pharmacy for something. Traditionally, uh, uh, consumers are now coming to their everyday um, food and drink products to, to try and find that soft function in the product without being able to be told specifically what that product does. And that really is where brand comes into play there in terms of the messages and the communication that, that the brand is able to, to, to deliver to that consumer. I think it, this might be an overstatement, but, but I very much see CBD as part of the, the social zeitgeist in the same way that I think Red Bull so so amazingly captured that in the 90s, where there was this, yeah, the 90s consumer could could be sort of um, typified as, as, as consumerists driving faster, wanting more in their life, kind of push, push, push at any cost. And, and Red Bull really embodied that, that drive to do that and was the aid towards doing that. 
and we live in a very different world now where consumers and individuals are much they have much different functional needs in their life they're much more concerned about mental health about well-being about holistic well-being about how they manage the manage the stresses of modern life and products that can assist them in doing that and cbd really plays into that social zeitgeist it no matter what form it comes in whether it's food whether it's drink whether it's topical whether it's a supplement it, it kind of plays into that overarching zeitgeist of the consumer and i think that's why it's become something along with other potentially natural functional ingredients but obviously cbd has that heritage and that entering factor that some of those others don't which immediately catapults it to this kind of to this stratospheric level and do you think that the 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 largest multinationals that are caught on the flat foot with this much as they were with the the analogy you made to the rise of red bull and energy drinks in the 90s I think there's a challenge as a, as a big CPG business. It's you are a big beast that takes a long time to manoeuvre, and that's not often the friend of innovation. Um, I don't think I'd be offending anyone by saying that, that the best innovations often don't come out of, of big um, consumer products groups or, or FMCG groups. I think that there is an opportunity for those groups to play a real role in the in the growth of this industry now. Um, and it's not, you know, although this industry is nascent, we're not at early stage now. You know, train is out of the station now. And now is the time, I think, to be involved in this industry. I think they have an important role to play in terms of you know, key aspects of commercializing these products, distribution not least. Um, but also a role to play in the validity of this industry um, and removing some of the stigma that's attached to it. Um, moving it out of the shadows and out of the kind of the sort of old-fashioned connotations that are attached to it. I would add to that what Rebecca said, and obviously fully agree. Um, this kind of conversation that continues um, happening around the subject of cannabis, uh, this uh, fear, if you wish, of educational uh, risk, which I, I believe is massively overstated. Uh, if you look at around most of the countries around the world, the vast majority of consumers are fully supportive of it. No brand has actually lost, um, you know, I was having this chat with a ma major player within um, the snacks industry. I cannot name names um, uh, right now, but just a couple of days ago, they were asking me, you know, is there, have we witnessed any major reputational um, effects on any of the brands that actually made the jump? Um, and no, there, there hasn't been a single example of, of a brand that actually faced uh, a backlash or, or anything like that. Uh, I mean, the, the major obvious example is a constellation here. The problems that they're facing cannabis right now are primarily because of lack of focus on uh, what cannabis is doing. But uh, by if you look at this actual sales of constellation in, in terms of beer, if anything, they have accelerated um, their underlying sales, showcasing their relevance to demographics that have no issue whatsoever with at least, at the very least, starting this discussion around cannabis. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, first of all, take out of this equation all the generic associations with, you know, the cannabis uh, leaf and, uh, you know, a bit of Bob Marley in the back background and all that kind of, uh, you know, very uh, traditionalist uh, 70s um, uh, semiotics and, and, and understand that cannabis is, is as Rebecca suggested, a plant that will lead the way um, into this new post-COVID era. We are not in 2019 anymore. Uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Things have changed around us. And people are on board. There is no backlash. There is no downside. There are obviously the regulatory problems and twists that we've mentioned until now. Um, but um, the ground is fertile for the plant to actually bloom, if you wish, if I can end that note when it comes to that. Yeah. I, and there's I only one thing worth saying they're not being talked about, and being talked about, and that's they're not being talked about at all. So what greater gift right now for consumer products and retailers than to be relevant? It's really the story of cannabis reform is the remarkable lack of opposition that's accompanied it. So if you look at the way in which reform has moved across North America, um, largely states that have reformed have then encouraged the state uh, neighboring them to do the same. And we haven't seen protests, we haven't seen opposition, we've seen large scale adoption to the point where it would be anathema on the west coast of North America to ever consider removing cannabis retail. And cannabis retail is as common as coffee retail. And it is a, a really deeply embedded part of the culture that it seems almost impossible that that would be rowed back from. But and I would add, that, that, it's also yeah. an essential service now. It's also officially during yeah. the US. We would have to all stress of us right now. There were only supermarkets open in the US and dispensaries was one of the 
very few places that actually were acknowledged, even within this kind of semi, you know, uh, semi-legal situation, because it's not federally legal in the U.S., to actually be acknowledged as essential services. And I think there is a symbolic meaning to that, highlighting exactly what we've been saying just now. I, I think, think on that note, though, it's, it's important to note, certainly in the context of, of Europe right now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is an, a flooded and overrun market. Um, it's not. I mean, there's a lot of noise um, and there's a lot of stuff out there, but there's not a lot of quality and there's no real traction and cut through at this stage. And I say that as someone who originated and placed a brand in, in a number of retailers. So it, it, the, to, the, the train is at the station, but it's not by no means too late at this point. There is a real opportunity now to be part of sculpting what's been a little bit of a, a muddle up until this stage into a real consumer products industry. Um, and the time is now very much. I think it's clear that the full-scale recreational reform has been very popular uh, where it's been implemented, but um, some, some people have concerns about um, the, the food and drinks style, the kind of products that are on the UK market at the moment, and the degree to which they're efficacious, and then the question as to whether it matters really if, how efficacious low-dose CBD products are. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, do, do you think that this compound's here to stay, even if it has, you know, very minor effects or potentially no perceivable effects for a lot of the reasons that people are using it? Well, I think first of all, the differences between the North American and the European market are important to note here. The North American cannabis market, and by cannabis, I encompass CBD through to recreational use, has been led from recreational legalization of cannabis. There's a very, it's a very rec-led market, as opposed to here, which quite obviously is not, and it's a health and wellness-led, on the CBD side, it's a health and wellness-led market. I think what that means in North America is that CBD often gets tarred with the brush. Well, why would I use CBD? Because I can get high with the THC products that I can buy. It's not the same thing. Whereas here, we're, we're not in that industry. We're in a health and well-being industry. We're not, we're not taking these things for, for recreational reasons. We're taking them as health and well-being and wellness products. So I think it's an important distinction and one that sets Europe apart and potentially sets it on a slightly different track to its sort of North American cousins. I think it's also important to recognise the divide here between a medical cannabis industry and a consumer products industry, which is what we're talking about. And a lot of the noise in the consumer products industry is, and this I think is because of lack of brand in the market, is how much CBD is in there? How does that work for me? Now, that's a somewhat pointless question because everybody reacts to CBD differently um, and competing on the amount of CBD in a product is, is a zero sum game. What ultimately is gonna win consumers' hearts and minds is brand and good brand communication. So is it unimportant how much is in there? No. Is it the most important thing? No, I don't think it is. Um, is it the most important thing that everyone feels a, a, an efficacious experience every time with these products? No, it's not. And I'm being perfectly honest and open about that. Often these products are a gateway into experiencing this industry, experiencing the plant, understanding more about it, which can potentially, if you try a drink with a low dose of CBD, can lead you on to a greater understanding of what a CBD or oil does, which costs 60 pounds and is a much bigger decision to, as a consumer to make. So I think every product in the chain has a role to play in building the industry, and all of them are important in doing that. But I don't think we, we should confuse this with an industry that's trying to treat illness and ailments. There is a place for that, in, in the medicinal industry and in the pharma industry, it is definitely not here. And that goes for CBD along with any other kind of natural ingredient that's being, functional ingredient that's being placed in food and drink. I, I would agree with that. Um, I would go further. I would say that I think one of the next step, steps that we're going to be seeing, uh, the, the question is important anyway. I think, I think there's no question about that. But uh, as Rebecca says, I'm not entirely sure what the efficacy of Coca-Cola is, but people love it anyway. So um, that, that's, the, that's the importance of branding, essentially, in, in just in a nutshell. So that, that's just in terms of branding. When it comes to the next steps, I believe the efficacy conversation will move further into incorporating additional ingredients. For example, uh, you know, uh, talking about the soothing um, elements of CBD and how it can assist in uh, um, uh, sleeping. And, you know, someone I'm sure will start combining with um, uh, ingredients like chamomile or others that are also not necessarily used within the medicinal concept, like Rebecca mentioned earlier, but potentially combined with CBD 
can provide the same um, perception or at the very least uh, assist, if not medicinally assist, um, and into having some kind of effective moving forward. I, I would add to that uh, efficacy, bioavailability, uh, and all that kind of uh, the side of the conversation. Uh, let's go back to where we started here. And essentially, the question is not just uh, a product on the high street right now having a very minimal amount of CBD. It is that the fact that the vast majority of them have amounts of CBD that we cannot prove and we cannot trust. And, and that is going back to the start of the conversation, and as Rebecca started as well, and she was very correct, uh, incorporating into this conversation major FMCG players will actually provide consumers with, uh, with trust and the brand equity of actually being certain that what they are consuming is what it says on the team. And I think that is a must part of, of the branding conversation that we're currently missing. Many of the products out there, it's not just that they have uh, or claim to have minimal amounts of CBD, it's that no one actually trusts them to have what they say they do. And I think this is a major question that creates massive roadblocks moving forward. And I think that the rigors that, that established CPG players bring to the market in those processes are what is needed in this market. Now, CBD has complexity, not that we want to get into it, in that you know, testing for levels of CBD requires the, the, the companies that are doing the testing to make sure that they have appropriate levels of accuracy. So there, there are complexities around that. But the rigors that are applied in other areas of food and drink have to be applied here. And, and I often get asked, you know, why is it yeah, the, the, the sort of processes that people are advocating for in, in food and drink and CBD exclude small players? And they absolutely should, because this is stuff that you're going to be eating or drinking. So if you haven't done very basic food safety and accurate labeling and all of those kind of things, you shouldn't have a product on the market in CBD or anything else. So you know, this debate has become somewhat conflated into, into a random conversation about, about whether you should have to adhere to the standard principles of food safety. And, and you know, yes, is the answer. <laughs> Yeah, and I found that personally shocking. I was out in Oregon looking at a company which produced cannabis food and drinks back in 2016. And I asked, how do you ensure standardized dosing? And they had very specific dosing on their product. And they said, we mixed it very well. And I thought it was a joke. And it was literally somebody hand mixing the products and then them guessing the dose. And unfortunately, that has been something that people have thought was acceptable, not bringing really high standards of rigor uh, to ensuring dosing. But I think we've, tr we've touched on a few of the concerns people have when they're building brands in this space, trust, compliance, efficacy. Um, but there's some other stuff that we ha haven't spoken about yet, that the most structural problems, you know, Distribution and retail is difficult, um, even in quite favourable markets like the UK. Um, I know this is something that you're exploring at the moment, Rebecca. What, how do you think people deal with this very complicated distribution and retail environment? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, I would say it's a frustrating and frustrated route to market at the moment. And that's a result of what we've talked about before, which a lot of twists and turns in regulation, what this is, what this isn't, how it gets categorized, what's the framework that everybody works to. And ultimately what that leads to is widespread confusion and most especially amongst retailers and consumers, which leads to a lack of confidence in the market. And therefore, you know, if without that distribution, you don't have an industry, you can create as much noise as you like. Um, but building building a CPG brand is about building the, the audience and, and, and eyes on product on shelf. So it, it's been a frustrating period and, and one that I, you know, I hope not just from a UK level, but that, that there are so many stakeholders in this industry that, that often these processes get derailed. And I hope that we can get through in the UK, certainly get through this this next phase of regulation sensibly to move the conversation on and and have some confidence built in this industry. Um, I, you know, I, I struck from a macro level, I strongly believe that that will be the case because there, are so many, there is so much to be gained economically from this. And, and none of us want to ever admit this, but economics is usually what drives these things. So yeah, economically, there's so much to be gained. In a post-COVID world, economics becomes even more important to individual countries. And in a post-Brexit world, it's, it's important from a UK-centric point of view. So yeah, my, my strong belief is that, that we are going to move on from this debate and it will become it will become a thing of the past in the not too distant future. Well, that means for the for us, for me, 
and for other the kind of other people, I guess, who are on this webinar is now is the time that you need to be making those plans and those moves in this market. I thoroughly agree with all of that. And, and I think there was a chance to move too early in this market as well as too late. And we did see a huge slew of interest in sort of 2015, 2016, but it was very difficult even to secure your supply chain, let alone a, a route to market uh, back in that environment. And it does feel very much like while there is still a high degree of uncertainty, that this is now there is enough clarity for it to be the time to act. Firos, what do you think the really exciting opportunities are in these branded uh, cannabis can extract CBD product. Um, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but from my vantage point, talking from about the alcohol industry, I think uh, the clear space of action for me is the rise of non-alcoholic adult beverage space. Epicenter, obviously, for most of us, uh, have anything to do with the alcohol industry in the last couple of years, has been uh, the first uh, non-alcoholic spirit. But since then, I what I call many of Simplic's disciples, many brands that actually followed um, Ben's example with launching similar products are uh, making inroads across the market. So, and I believe that combining this positioning with CBD could uh, really pay uh, massive dividends down there. But beyond that, and uh, one of the things that we haven't mentioned right now, uh, uh, CBD consumption can also happen by via smoking or vaping. Uh, but in a post-COVID world, uh, is that the ideal format to do that? Uh, wouldn't foods and drinks actually provide the perfect platform? for consuming cannabinoids in a much more safe environment as consumers are increasingly skeptical about anything that uh, could potentially have a, a problematic effect uh, on anything respiratory related. So I believe that uh, not only in terms of uh, general health and wellness trends and, and, a, and a renewed interest in anything related to that, but also within the specific context of respiratory illnesses uh, and uh, alternative ways of consuming cannabinoids place foods and drinks industries in the perfect position uh, to be right now. The first anecdotal information that we have from the US, where actually they have uh, the entire spectrum of varieties available in front of them for consumption, have showcased that drink uh, and foods uh, from confectionery to snacks, uh, to cannabis beverages, CBD related or THC related, they have all witnessed a massive spike over the last couple of months during lockdown exactly because um, of this renewed interest on uh, taking care of respiratory avenues basically um, uh, as we move forward into this kind of post-covid world so there is no question in my mind from alcoholic drinks to soft drinks um, to the blurring of category lines of what we call adult uh, non-alcoholic beverages all the way to confectionery snacks and foods all of these categories are ripe for the taking for cannabis and the possibility when we're talking about you yeah, yeah I, I mean, obviously, drinks are very close to my heart and, and an area where where I see huge potential for for CBD beverages. But um, I should say that, that that that's not that's not only where I think there is interest for consumer products. So, you know, I see the food and drink space, supplements and and beauty, particularly as interesting areas for for CPG in the future. I think the next few months is probably going to see um, quite a lot of knee-jerk reaction to what's happened in COVID, particularly from retailers, where there's a, a sort of an immediate reaction to scale back ranges, to go back to basics, to reduce skew numbers, to, to kind of only focus on core products. I do think that is a knee-jerk, and I think ultimately, as we as we come out of this sort of very difficult phase, retailers, brands. Um, CPG businesses, as I said before, need to search for relevance, renewed relevance with consumers. Um, and I think CBD is a very exciting way of doing that. Um, I think it is the most exciting way of doing that in food and drink. So I think the opportunity here for for um, for brands and for, for retailers is is to find that renewed relevance in, in a very different world that we now we now live in. Um, I think from a again from a more macro level, I think the opportunity now exists to take the progression that the industry has has been through and really apply audience to that brands are created by audience amplification um, and that can be achieved in lots of different ways and, and certainly one of the things that, that we as a business are focused on in the coming months is is amplifying the voice of these brands on a much larger scale 
Um, and I, you know, there's a lot of people in this industry who would turn their noses up at that because they think it's the over-commercialization of something that shouldn't be over-commercialized. And I say that's rubbish. Um, I think this is exactly what this industry needs and it needs, it needs amplification. It needs to use the voices of other individuals and other brands and, and other existing um, voices that, that are out there in the market to, to, to really bring the potential that this industry has to life. Because at the moment, it's a lot of, it's a lot of noise but a lot of noise in a small group and that needs to come to, to come much lighter. So I think that's where the huge opportunity lies and certainly not giving any, any way any secrets to say that that's where my commercial efforts will be focused in the future. From my perspective, I, I, I think that the opportunities are right across the, the spectrum and, and there are a huge amount of niches that are yet to be filled and, and very low um, levels of, of brand awareness uh, and, and, and next to no brand loyalty as it is at the moment. So there is the real opportunity, like you keep saying, Rebecca, for, to focus on brand and, and for that to show real growth in specific brands. And I, I, and I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's really started yet, to be frank. Um, so I, I'd like to um, turn over now, unless either of you have any burning comments on that issue, to, to questions from the audience. I would just add uh, to uh, Rebecca's comments that... Uh, you know, and I know that there's a little backlash about the over-commercialization that she mentioned, but I always remind people that these two are not mutually exclusive. Over-commercialization and the mainstreamization, if you wish, of cannabis will not stop uh, niche, small-scale operators to actually make inroads as well. The, the rise of craft wouldn't be possible if uh, ABI didn't exist. Uh, Counter-trends and um, contrarian views, uh, you know, sometimes... Um, can actually, as I was saying earlier, bloom exactly on this kind of um, uh, background that we described earlier. Once the major FMCG players actually create the, uh, the branding environment, the, the, uh, the trust out there, then I also believe that a, a number of smaller scale crafts, uh, micro producers will also capitalize on that. So I don't see these two necessarily as uh, clashing with each other. So just, just to allay any fears of anyone uh, listening to us that... Uh, we're just promoting on one side of this equation, but I actually believe that uh, the rising uh, green tide will essentially raise all boats. So let's just uh, remind that to our listeners as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I don't think many, um, you know, uh, self-styled rebels would accept the fact that they need the system in order to be able to rail against the system. But uh, I definitely think you're right. So I, I think uh, without further ado, uh, I pass over to my colleague, Tom, who I believe has some questions that have been being fired in from the audience while we've been uh, enthralled in, in speaking with each other. What is the benefit of adding CBD to alcohol uh, and will it encourage dangerous or irresponsible drinking? Uh, first of all, I will, I will start with the second part of the, of the question that uh, the answer is clearly no. It's easier uh, question to answer. When it comes to the, the benefits, I will probably point the direction of the conversation we were having earlier. This is not going to be medicinal claims related uh, positioning. It will be a, a position, and that's what Rebecca very clearly stated and, uh, and clarified in her earlier comments as well. We need to entirely separate uh, efficacy claims when medicinal products and um, expectations when it comes to uh, recreational or health and wellness related products. And the reason I highlighted a very specific segment within the alcohol industry, which is very new, very exciting, and not clearly belonging to alcoholic drinks, but, um, and that's why we describe them as non-alcoholic adult beverages, like a non-alcoholic spirit. That's only four years ago, would have sounded like an oxymoron or, or a very bad joke, but uh, uh, it's, the, the sales are actually skyrocketing across the world. And not only uh, Sidlib is doing well, but actually an entire category popped up out of, out of it without necessarily uh, anyone expecting it to happen. I mean, I did, but, but I was, again, I was a lone voice in the desert. So what are the, what are the when it comes to, to, to that with this question, what are the benefits? The benefits sometimes, and as we've been saying, are brand-related, positioning-related, perception-related, uh, less so about uh, looking through a very strict lens of uh, medical efficacy. And, I, um, and the positioning of non-alcoholic other beverages is exactly perfectly there right now as we speak for a combination or a cross-pollination with uh, CBD uh, offerings as well. I don't know if you, Rebecca, agree with that. I totally agree with you. From a, from my point of view, it is a, it's a low and no opportunity in alcohol. I, I personally have challenges with 
with the sort of approach of pairing CBD with the kind of culture, which is very much in decline of going out, getting drunk, getting wasted, those kind of things. That's not, it's not a, a judgment, but I just don't think the, the messaging fits. Um, but I think in a, in a low and no ABV world, I think there are a lot of parallels between um, the reasons, you know, the reasons why consumers buy. Um, and I think it fits very well in that environment. I would just add on that, by the way, that uh, that shouldn't, of course, stop us with experimentation um, with alcoholic drinks as well. And most likely, as uh, Rebecca suggested, the lower side of it rather than high end, uh, high octane alcoholic drinks. But even in the in the context of high octane alcoholic drinks, there is no proof of any uh, adverse, uh, you know, uh, negative reactions because of CBD combinations. We have to remind ourselves it does not have any uh, psychotropic effects. It's not see. There is no what uh, the kids these days call crossfade, essentially the combination of THC yeah. uh, with um, with alcoholic uh, effects. So there is not really a downside risk, either on reputational effects or with someone losing their mind. Uh, we, we we're way ahead from uh, um, this kind of paranoia, um, uh, you know, uh, movies from the 1930s. This is not happening. It's just. A matter of positioning, some suggest there is a mellowing effect, very subtle mellowing effect in the effects of alcohol as well. It's to be debated, but um, the actual dangers in my mind and from any experience and uh, anecdotal information, it's just not there. A bit of a, a broad one. I think we touched on this at, at the beginning, but um, maybe George, if you start us, uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, the European Commission's decision? This is the most recent one. Uh, to treat CBD extracts as a narcotic rather than, than a food? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts on it. <laughs> I think, but firstly, um, I, I, I do think it, it's frustrating um, because the European FSA came out and said, here is a pathway towards regulatory compliance. Cannabis extracts in foods are novel foods, and if you show us that they're safe, then you can sell them. Um, and then it was only some quite some time after that that they've now confirmed this position that um, CBD derived from the cannabis flower is, in their opinion, a narcotic. Now, that determination on that specific legal issue is something which splits opinion. Obviously, the UK Home Office deviates in its opinion, and therefore so does the UK Food Standards Agency. Um, so I think it's, it's frustrating for people who've been engaging in good faith with the process to now not have their applications validated at such a late stage. Um, however, we have to bear in mind that there are shifts coming at a higher level at the UN, um, which may impact this. And there are also legal cases at the European level, which may impact this. So I do not think that this is a death knoll. I do, however, think that it, it means that the focus is going to remain on the UK and USA at the moment, um, and that that's where brands will have to cut their teeth. Um, but I'd be interested to hear uh, my fellow panellists' thoughts on the matter. Yeah, I, I agree with you broadly, George. I think it, it's another reflection of how complicated history of this plant is now causing a lot of confusion um, because of the different um, the different policies at different levels. I don't think it's a death knell at all. I think it's um, a prevarication on the, the part of um, the EU over this. As I said at the beginning, economics usually wins in this. Um, the UK, from a European perspective, that's a pathway to compliance, which they have stated that they will be sticking to. It is inconceivable, as I said, in a post-Brexit, post-COVID environment, that the UK will be allowed to pursue what is a potentially hugely commercial viable industry solo without the rest of Europe hot on its heels. It's not going to happen. So I think it's it's a prevarication, which is another twist in the road. Um, it means from a commercial perspective, um, the UK is even more important. But but to be clear, the UK outside of the US has always been the most important market for consumer goods in terms of creating brand and brand appeal. And that's, yeah, people don't like hearing that, but that's the case. So the UK was always the most important market there. Um, Europe has always been hard to crack because of its fragmented, fragmented nature, um, not just on this issue, but on, on structurally on many other issues. So I think it's, um, it's a twist in the road. Um, it won't be the last one, but it's, you know, it's just something that we're at this stage used to. And I think 
as you said, when when we see what happens in December with the UN, I think we will see this cleared up. Um, I think we're we're running probably a little bit over time already now. So, um, George, I don't know if you've got any closing comments. Okay, thank you very much, Tom. And sorry to anyone who was waiting on the line to have their question answered. Um, yeah, as Tom said, we will answer it afterwards. Um, I, I don't have anything further to say. Obviously, I could speak about this all day. Well, I do. That's my job. <laughs> Literally speak about this all day. Uh, but I, I'd just like to say thank you very much again for having me. And uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you both, Spiros and Rebecca, and pass over to you for any final remarks. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for thanks for having us here. It's, you know, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always. I think it's such an interesting topic, which you can never condense into an hour. Um, and, you know, all of us, I think, are available to to dive into more detail on on these matters afterwards, please do do get in touch. Um, it's something we could talk about for hours. But I guess my my parting message is it's an exciting industry, um, and it's an it's a pivotal time in this industry, and it really is the time now for the the entrenched CPG players to to get involved. Um, and we're looking forward to it. And it was a pleasure for me as well. Uh, we'll just finish with a reminder to everyone that more or less like uh, the current pandemic, this is not a sprint; it's a marathon. It has already begun. The guns are already fired, and um, we are in it for the long run. In the long run, as all of us agreed on this panel, um, the opportunity is definitely there, even if we have to jump over some twists on the road. All right, excellent. Well, thank you, everyone, uh, in particular to the FDS for hosting us. Um, please do reach out. Uh, we at Hamway can answer, uh, hopefully, any of your questions on these topics. Um, yeah, and look forward to speaking to some of you offline. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow, and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.